This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello friends, you find me back in my kitchen rummaging through the cupboards for something to eat before this week's guest arrives. Supplies are a bit low. I've just got back from Glasgow. I've been reviewing restaurants all weekend, but I am still living out of a suitcase in the middle of the living room floor. Maybe sort that out at some point. What do I eat before sitting down with the former deputy leader of the Labour Party? I've decided this week on one of my most secret pleasures, which is packet sage and onion stuffing. You know, the quite powdery stuff. I'm going to make it and I'm going to have it in a white bread roll with butter. What do I dip it in? Brown sauce, obviously. Tom Watson was a politician for almost 20 years, serving as the MP for West Bromwich East and quickly making his way to the very heart of Westminster. He was elected deputy leader of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn before somewhat abruptly walking away from it all in 2019. He's undergone a huge physical transformation, going from 22 stone at his heaviest to losing eight stone and even, he says, reversing his type 2 diabetes. So what comfort foods have sustained him and how easy is it to stick to a self-imposed diet like that? I wonder if stuffing sandwiches are part of his healthy plan. It's actually delicious. Tom Watson, welcome to Comfort Eating. Hi, Grace. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Well, it's good to be here. I'm, I, I'm looking at I've had a little nib around your room while you've been inside. Because <laughs> when you were interviewing Stephen Fry, you were talking about pictures on the wall yes. and the house not being done. So you've you've been busy since you've since that interview. I haven't actually been busy myself. What I did was I rang a company and got somebody to come round and do bits because I can't drill a nail in a wall. I think I maybe could, but I don't trust myself. 
Can you put no, pictures up? I'm an utter disaster at everything. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to renovate a house in the yeah. Midlands now. But I mean like proper renovation. Like There's rooms without electricity. Like um, grand designs. No, not... not Like more, escape to the chateau. More like I'm living in a derelict house and I need to stop the roof from leaking. The good news is <laughs> yeah. that I love getting to see what people eat in the comfort of their own, if they have any comfort in yeah. their own home. I yeah. love getting to see what they eat there. And I'm getting ex- especially excited about your snack because I can smell it. Oh, God. Right. But I've had a good thing and I don't even know what food group it is <laughs> because okay. it's like, it's a really pungent and I'm going to say meaty type Me- thing, but I don't know what meat. Yeah. It could be anything. Okay, so... I what be- are we eating today? What it's sold as is lamb kebab with chilli sauce and avocado. Hang on, one of these words is not like the other. I, I, I mean, I, I guess this is like, I'm a kid from the Midlands and I used to go to pubs a lot and live on kebabs for many yeah. years before I lost a lot of weight and got healthy. And when I kind of swing into recklessness, I go straight back to kebabs. But Where because I it? became an MP and a little bit middle class, and I would, if I got in drunk, there would be always be avocados in the fridge, which uh-huh. go really well with chilli sauce. So yeah. I'd sort of throw yeah, an do. avocado in as well. I need to see this thing. Please, okay. please unveil the snack. Oh, my God. It's, this... it's the classic polystyrene yellow. Oh, hang yeah, on don't... a minute. No, it's not very Guardian, this, this is it. It's is not... this the actual kind of, oh, I'm going to say elephant's leg? Is it... Oh, Lord. You, you don't have to eat it if you don't want to. No, it. but I am actually, I'm not I... going to say contractually obliged, but oh, I yeah, feel like I should... I, I can, I promise you. Oh, that... I've never even seen the meat look like that before. It's very, oh, there's more of it. Well, there's one each. So, and Have the... you not got any bread to go with it? Oh. I Obviously, I don't have bread anymore. <laughs> I'm low carb. Oh, Tom, no. So, oh, you're looking horrified. Right, okay. What I'm going to say is, the best part of a kebab for me is the carby bits around the, the f- bread. around the actual yeah. meat. Yeah. And my idea of hell in a kebab shop is that that because what is it? I mean what kind of meat is it? Is it lamb? Do we it, Well we, it's probably it's got lamb in the title. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what I mean there'll be a bit of lamb in there. <laughs> I, I always think there's probably you know there might be a few hooves and hairy ears and stuff i suppose but i and i've never seen i've never seen the meat not in the context of with the sauce and the salad and the bread wrapped around it to kind of hide that and what i'm amazed at is how wobbly and pink and gelatinous yeah that's the fact it's got it's got a bit cold since it's come back it goes it's worse if you have it in the fridge for 12 hours now I'm opening these. I think this is the chili sauce. See, if gonna... I was going to the that is red hot chili sauce. Is it? Did you just sip that sauce? I, I put my tongue. In Did the you? Top. <laughs> I, I, I only... Did you just sip did... it like it was a rare, a rare whiskey? Well, it is. Mm. It is rare these days. <laughs> oh, that's not. That's. 
I've not had this for ages. Oh my god, I can't even. It's like that bit does look like a hoof. Oh no, Grace, I feel I'm feeling anxious now. Oh my god, absolutely, it's me. Spit it out if you want. Oh, don't, don't be sick. I, I I can't make you be sick it's on your own you. podcast. Go on, spit it out. Go spit it out. I'm having growth of me. Oh great. Just if you, you don't know this, but I'm on my own in her living room. She's gone to the kitchen to be sick, and I'm stuffing this down my face before because she's going to ask me loads of questions when she's back. <laughs> I've got to say, this is like visiting an old friend. <laughs> Can I come again? Yes. You grew up in Kidderminster. The original Watson household consisted of you, your mum and your dad, your younger brother Dan and your little sister Meg. So to what extent did homemade food feature when you were growing up? Well, I'm of that generation. Obviously, you didn't have microwaves in the early 70s. So a lot of it was homemade food. And I was a very finickety kid with food. You know, Richard Corrigan would probably love my mum's steak and kidney pies, mm. but they made me want to be sick and I, d- mm. I couldn't eat them. And the ki- I, was it the kidney? It was a kidney. Well, she Can't did all it. that. And she they were, there was a lot of food and there were great Sunday roasts. Like I remember my dad would go to the Haberley Club, working men's club. Yeah, flat, flat roof. Flat roof, still there. Yeah. Just about. And that would be, we'd have like pop and crisps and watching put money in the fruit machine and then we'd go back and mum would have like an amazing roast beef with homemade Yorkshire pudding and like just everything yeah. gravy homemade gravy things started going a bit wrong when my mum and dad split up mm. how old were you then I was about nine or ten and and she did a sociology degree at Worcester College of Higher Education and all of a sudden things started going a bit wrong in the kitchen <laughs> I remember yeah. coming home one day and there's a massive poster of Andy Gibb in the kitchen <laughs> And she's like, you know, reading this guy called Karl Marx and, you know, it's all like she started having conversations about having to cook for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I love the microwave. I I remember us going to what was Kidderminster's equivalent of the ideal home exhibition at the youth centre. There was like a demonstration of a thing called a microwave and they did little tiny bits of sausage warmed up in there that they were giving away for free. And, like, we pestered Mum to get this microwave. She was going, oh, no, 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 there's radiation and they're very expensive. And, look, the sausages are still white. She doesn't... But, I mean, we didn't. We just wanted to warm up sausages in the microwave. Yeah. So all those little labour-saving devices that had weird marketing things in the... We, you know, mm. we went for them. The, the, the life-changing moment was obviously the Breville toaster. Oh, I mean, even now. <laughs> so re- glad you said that. I'm sorry. I feel exactly the same. Oh, I love that. Bre- I lived on them. I lived on Breville. I lived on cheese and ham Breville toasties for a good two years. And uh, the I- fact it sealed the edges. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you put the butter on the outside yeah. of the bread. Yeah. So it made it all delicious. And there's a real art form to it. Because if you, sometimes if you didn't get the bread right, the, the cheese would melt out, and you'd yes. really hate yourself for it. Because you were, and you'd have to try and scoop it up and burn <laughs> your fingers. <laughs> Tell me what meal times were like. I mean, you have a funny childhood when you grow up in a political family. I mean, no, no one wanted to be. They, it was all 
part time. Then there was no sort of inherited. You, you you shall be an MP one day, son, and the land will be yours. It was you you sort of sitting, you know, trying to get your fair share of the food when you there's this conversation going on. So I remember my earliest memory, the earliest sort of political thing, was Watergate. But me thinking that Watergate was in some way some scandal related to a dam, I didn't realise yes. it was a location because I was piecing it all together. Yeah. And then I remember banana sandwiches in the um, in the miners' strike when the electricity was off, sitting on a bed with my brother, a bit frightened because the, the lights were off, and mum giving us this banana sandwich and me saying, why are the lights off, mum? And she said, because Mr Heath won't pay the miners enough money, son. And then being really irritated with Ted Heath because he, you know, but not yeah. so you get in the strands of a political argument, but not organising it. But it was always around food and and in in my dad's case in particular, drink. You know, there'd always be, you know, he'd be coming back from pubs or meetings or whatever. So politics was part of your life from a very early age. But what else were you into as a young teenager? We worshipped the specials. You know, we wore our Fred Perry's and we were, we were from the West Midlands. So, yeah. you know, and I still see the specials now. Yeah. Uh, and obsession with David Bowie. Mm. And then I remember Soul Mining by The The, which I still yes. think oh. is the greatest album ever made. But I was a member of the ABBA fan club. What? Uh, you know, I loved the look. Yeah. I had a little ABBA sweat top and all of the, This was before I was a cool scar boy. Um, yeah, so, the two things aren't, no, you, you can't do them both at the same time. I was very uncool as a kid. <laughs> I, I, was ner I was nerdy before that word existed. So yeah. I had little obsessions. I got obsessively into Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, God. And um, my hero was Ian Livingstone. And actually, I've been helping sort some stuff out in my mum's house. And I found all my old Dungeons & Dragons gear, all the characters and all the little maps you'd write when you were... Do you know about Dungeons & Dragons? Um, I know what Dungeons & Dragons is. I don't know how you play it. They do called you? it a fantasy role-playing game. So you have to, like, be, pretend that you're a, a dwarf or an orc. Or and could you, you play it by yourself? No. Do you kind of have to because no, you're you, into Dungeons & Dragons? You need similarly inadequate <laughs> men of a certain age to be able to do it so how would you describe your relationship with food when you were a child and a young teen i mean my relationship with food is very complicated and i'm still trying to understand it now yeah. and i mean you don't get to be 22 stoned for over a decade if you don't have a not mm. a particularly great relationship with mm. food but I never thought that at the time. And I would now probably describe myself as someone who has some kind of compulsive eating issue. Did you then? No, I had no... A friend of mine said, you know, I, I, I've had an eating disorder all my life. And I said, oh, I've never had that, but I do have disordered eating. And then we sort of stopped yes. and she looked at me. And the obvious thing in the middle of the conversation was, what's the difference? And, and it was actually a, one of those idiot moments where mm. at the age of 54, you realise something about yourself. Yeah. And, I, and so I kind of I kind of think I've had a, some fine form of eating disorder, either compulsive eating or... And like in, when I was started to get healthy, I changed my nutrition mm. um, and gave up sugar. 
and I got better very quickly. I got well again. I lost weight mm. and turned my health around. And I was obviously a sugar addict. Yeah. And I thought I've shaken off an addiction. I'm okay now. But obviously I think my compulsive eating had led to the sugar addiction rather than the sugar addiction leading to the... Were you one of those people that if if you couldn't just have a bit, you would have to have everything right there and then? Yeah. So as we're talking now, I'm thinking, I hope she didn't throw those two kebabs away. Are they really in the kitchen? Because I, I really fancy eating them now. I Interesting. Like, when I, start, I started to write a book, I wrote, I wrote this book, Downsizing, about my health journey, right? Yeah. And when I started to write it, I thought, oh, I haven't got much content here. And so I emailed all my friends and said, you know, do you remember, you know, you probably don't. Yeah, have you ever sort of been eating with me and noticed anything or whatever? And like my intrade, my inbox just started collapsing. And there were <laughs> like these stories. Like, yeah, yeah, we have actually. And there was the one um, family member said, well, my, when, if I've got a mental image of you, it's you literally walking into our house all the time with a phone in your hand, hearing the fridge door squeak and just watching you start at the top of the fridge working your way down the fridge anything you can put in your mouth just grazing and then yeah but not no not being aware of it yeah. I, i've never i i wasn't aware that i did it i didn't know that i did it and then there's another one a friend said uh yeah well we went to lunch in a, in manchester and i walked in and you were on your laptop and you were leaning over and eating somebody's left over cake off the other table so i didn't know what i was putting in myself or that i was doing it You were just 17 when you left your family home in Kidderminster for Southampton. How well equipped were you for looking after yourself? The real world was quite difficult for me then because I literally had to cook for myself and I, I had no clue. I, I, I was lived in this shared house in Southampton and I blew my dome. I was doing a volunteer thing with community service volunteers and I remember getting my first cheque from the dole people and I bought a Walkman and the double cassette of Pink Floyd The Wall and then realised I ain't got any money to buy any food. And so for two days I didn't eat. And then this other guy in the house came back one night drunk with a Chinese takeaway. Yeah. And I didn't eat what was in those days called foreign food. Yeah. But I was so flipping hungry, he, he, he gave me the leftovers. And it's the, I, to this day, I still remember that meal. It was the greatest meal I've ever eaten. What were the leftovers? It, mainly the sauce from uh, sweet and sour chicken. Yeah. So it was the sugary sauce. Yeah. And so I was slopping that up. There was some egg fried rice, which seemed very exotic. Yeah. And there were some spare ribs, dry <laughs> ones, not with the sauce. Yeah. And, I, you know, that, that was a bit of a challenge even then. But I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But then all of a sudden I thought, well, you know, why you don't actually not, not like foreign food. You've just never had it. So yes. then I then I would just eat anything. And, and that existed for about 30 years after that. I'd actually eat anything and everything. Why did you suddenly leave and strike out on your own? I fell out of, I went to, I started in the sixth form and I didn't do very well. And I was going to go to the FE, local FE college, but I had to wait a year. And my mum basically said, uh, 
well, you're not going to sit around the house all day eating Breville's and playing on your Atari and mm. Dungeons and Dragons with Charlie Robinson. You'd better go out and get a job. But there were no jobs. So but I, you'd started A-levels. I'd started A-levels. I'd done like a month. Uh, it surprises which, me you didn't do them because you you seem to me someone that you put uh, your mind to something and then you... Yeah, well, I didn't put my mind to A-levels. I, you, you know, I wanted, there was more going on. And so I went to com- a thing called community service volunteers mm. and I I got a train to Cardiff, which was a big thing for a teenager, did it on my own. They gave me an interview. I said, I'll do whatever you want. I'll start, I'll go wherever you want and I'll just do it. And they sent me to Southampton and I was only there four or five months, but it was enough to get me to a point where I could claim to be a young adult, no more than that. And then from there, once I'd done that, I wasn't ready to go back to Kidderminster. Yeah. So I went to London. I lived in a little bedsit in New Cross Gate with a guy called Greg who I went to school with. And we didn't have any jobs, but I applied for a load of jobs. And I got offered two jobs on the same day, a clerical assistant in the Department for Transport and the Environment and trainee library assistant in the headquarters of the Labour Party Library. And you said that you felt like the King of London. Paint me a picture of your social life during that time. It all nearly went wrong very quickly then, because we had the Labour Party staff Christmas party. I was 17. We think we're the King of London. <laughs> and actually we're two teenagers from Kidderminster. We know That's nothing sort of about free anything. Bar. <laughs> yeah, we got bladdered. And <laughs> when I got into work on Monday, I was called up to see Larry Whitty, the General Secretary, right? Oh, God. Because Greg had graffitied on the wall Tom Watson for El Presidente, which was quite literary for him. And the best day of my life with Greg Bryce was we couldn't afford to pay the rent. And he said, come on, we'll put some money on a horse. Rather... Uh, and he, so we went to Camden, which is the exotic place to go, at Camden in the 80s. We yeah. went to the World's End pub. There was an Irish bookies over the road. And he said, we'll put a place pot on. And this place pot came in. We'd got the money for the rent. We were literally, no one in London was better than us. We owned London. <laughs> we went on. It was like we would literally, we, we were hugging each other. We were like holding the cash in our hand. Anyway, obviously we blew it all in a night. We still couldn't afford to pay the rent. But I mean, you do those things when you're young, don't you? Um, what incredibly sophisticated London food were you eating around this point? Actually, the, my first day at the Labour Party, there was a very larger-than-life guy who worked in the sales department called Ted Higgins, who was a thespian. He'd been in the Arches 30 years before, but he was on the executive committee of the Campaign for Real Ale. And the first day he took me to the Tankard pub in uh, Walworth Road and they sold sausage sandwiches in a half a French loaf for 40p. Yeah. So I had that, and I loved that. And, mm. you could, and But he bought me two pints of something called Bass Ale, yeah. which tasted terrible. But because he was like a grown-up and I was a kid, I yeah. drank this Bass Ale. I know exactly what Bass Ale is, yeah. Well, I yeah. went back to the library that afternoon. I fell asleep in my chair and I was so strong. And then luckily Ruby, Ruby ran away and she used to look after me. She like would keep prodding me and waking me up. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I should have been sacked really. I, that was, that was well, before Greg graffitied on the walls. They should have sacked me before he got to the Christmas party. So you were from a political family, but 
What did this job teach you about politics that you didn't know? Well, first of all, honestly, it was like it was like winning X Factor being there for me. Was that the moment where you thought, this is it? I'm, no. They're not getting me out of this building. I'm going into politics. No, I, I, no, I, I didn't. Even then, they were the people who did politics and I was the kid from Kidderminster watching. There was a moment when, this would have been about a year in, and I remember being on the South Bank, having an afternoon to myself, and I read Robert Harris's biography, Neil Kinnock, and he talked about his background. He came from, you know, very strong working class background. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, hold on, I, that's me. I come from that background. Maybe I could do that. And I yeah. remember looking over and thinking, how do I do that? Could I do that? And then that kind of, the seed was sown then. You had a time at Hull University and then you returned to Labour yeah. in the late 80s as a youth development officer. By 2001, you were elected an MP. Yeah. And by 2015, you were a deputy leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> and there you... <laughs> I still laugh about that. It's very... <laughs> I can't quite believe it. Tell me what day-to-day -day life as a politician actually did look like when you got there really there's no off switch when you i mean if you get into that level all your your constant thoughts are there you're mulling over ideas issues problems for me i mean if i've got anything to thank jeremy corbyn for he, he did he did rid me of a 35 year minute by minute obsession mm. I, I mean when i walked away I, I i did stop thinking about it all the time it was it was like a sort of shedding a very heavy overcoat. Yes. Um, when I became deputy leader, obviously the Labour Party essentially went mad. And I was very sleep deprived, long and unpredictable hours. So I'd be grazing throughout the day. I'd have, you know, made great bacon butters in the members' tea room, but there'd be snacks, you know, there'd be leftover kebabs uh, before I left the flat. Um, Were you putting weight on then were you aware that you were putting weight on or was it yeah, well yes and no on? i mean over 30 years i mean i started putting pounds on mm. from my early 20s really and and then i'd make little tiny interventions and pull a little bit of weight off on crazy fad diets the the, the cabbage soup diet was the worst one oh, ever been there uh, uh, um, that was kathy at the amalgamated engineering and electrical union gave me that she still laughs about it she regrets doing it because obviously she had to share an office with me and it's not great. But, um, <laughs> and, they, and then. Was there any healthy food at all in the Commons? There was plenty of healthy food, most of which I, I didn't eat. Yeah. Uh, so they were pretty good at, um, y y you know, I mean, I, 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 I was just, it was very chaotic eating. It wasn't, there was no real rhythm to my days eating. You finish work at 10 o'clock, 10 30. And then so, where'd you go? I would go to Soho mm. and you'd have a few beers after work in the Commons. I'd yes. end up in Little Italy or in those days K-Box on Frith Street, which is great for karaoke. And it would be, you know, you'd get in in the early hours, you know, and that 
could, but that would be your weekend because uh, on a Friday and Saturday you're doing constituency stuff. So I'd never went out on a Friday night, but I'd go out on a Tuesday and Wednesday. And so it was a very unusual life. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, I reached a point where I was going to die if I carried on, I think. I mean, I, I was probably diabetic for some years before I formally got a diagnosis. A lot of these things, you kind of have a tiny little whisper in your head, but you're, you're sort of in denial. There's so much denial about all of this. It feels like there's a degree of obsessiveness in the way that <laughs> yeah. the way you were eating and in politics, doing things to a level that other people would pull back from. And it kind of reminds me, during that time with the Lord Britain incident, and you believed this thing about him, you believed that he was part of a paedophile ring, it later proved not to be true. When you get your teeth into something in lots of areas of your life, do you have to see something through? Do you ever just pull back? Yeah. Um, I, I if, if, if you're sort of zoning in on something, mm. everything else is shut out. Yeah. And most of the time... That's really that helps you in life, I think, yes. because it allows you to get to be quite resilient and to quite often swim against the tide. But occasionally it takes over. You know, when I said before, I'm there's still work in progress. I'm still yeah. working through all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and and now that I'm not, you know, spending seven days a week, a hundred hours a week on politics, there's much more time for reflection. Yes. And to just work all those things out. But there were times when you received a lot of criticism from within your own party, many accusing you of undermining your boss at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, as leader. Um, so what is it like to be accused of being a traitor by your own party? Well, I, I mean, it, I suppose it depends who's accusing you of it. I mean, when, when you're being sworn out or a minor's gala by Len McCluskey, it's a little bit uncomfortable because oh, no. it's... Um, but what did he call you? I don't know. He used the, he used the F word, though. Um, I mean, with Jeremy, I mean, he basically, you know, he, I, I, I didn't undermine him, but I disagreed with him. And I had my own mandate. 200,000 people voted for me. And um, I felt very responsible. You know, I didn't like anti-Semitism and I was pro-European. And those were really the two issues I stood out on. Mm-hmm. And on both of those, I made private representations and they were just didn't take anything I said seriously. So I spoke out publicly. But you made a massive change in your life. Was that to do with Joe Cox? I mean, Joe's murder was definitely the worst day of my life in politics. I knew her, I knew Brendan. I mean, you know, I sort of trained Brendan when he was a Labour student. Mm. I, I knew... A friendship circle. I'd campaign for her. Yeah, these were people. They weren't. They weren't politicians. No, too. they were friends. People. And people yeah. I. People I had real time for. Mm. Do you think that Joe's death had any impact on your ideas of mortality and your own health? At that point, I was already on my health journey. I mean, it certainly made me value the life I've got more. I think. How much have you lost? How much weight? Mm -hmm. At at my peak, I'd lost eight stone. And then I put some back on in lockdown three. And I had a bit of a setback because I thought I cracked it. I thought 
because I still don't, I don't really eat sweets now and mm. I don't eat sugary things. I, I, I'm, so I'm very disciplined in what I don't put in myself. But then lockdown happened and the cheese crisis hit the cheese making industry. And I read Ned Palmer's book, Your Guide to the British Isles it, through cheese or the mm. history of cheese making mm. and got a little bit obsessed with helping cheese makers out. So I was ordering cheese by mail order but they would only send it like by the chuckle rather than a little slice and like i was eating like two kilograms of cheese in about 72 hours and as a good will deed well obviously (laughs) that's i'm a politician right i was selling it to myself Uh, you were obsessively eating cheese yeah to help other people and i thought even then you know like you know like people were saying You've not eaten two kilograms of Mrs. Kirkham's in the last two days, really, have you? And I was going, I don't no. know why I'm laughing. That I is de- a lot of cheese. I would deny it, but I had. Like a drug addict. Yes. Yeah. And then I read a book by Dr. Jen Unwin. It basically said a lot of people give up sugar, then get another addiction. Yes. Very often cheese. And I remember sitting there thinking... Oh, it's like whack-a-mole. I've got, I, literally, it's one... So I know... Because at one point, when I... I literally reversed diabetes. I lost eight stone. I no longer eat Mars bars and stuff. I, I literally thought I was the Buddha. And I was, I was the happiest I've ever been. I was in equilibrium. <laughs> I had a year. I was running 5K a day. I was lifting weights, riding bikes. And this sort of lockdown came, this, this sort of massive setback... And, of course, what I'd really done was climb a very steep mountain, but I was only on the plateau, I wasn't at the peak. And there's yeah. another challenge. And so you learn a little bit more about yourself. But I'm now in a good state. I've got this thing where I've got this little reset thing. Yeah. So if I sort of drift off, I've got these rules that I apply to myself. Go on, what are they? Daily steps target, daily weigh-in, food logging, um, blood pressure logging. If if it, If I need to really go for it, I'll measure my blood sugars again although i don't need to these days eight stone is it's like a whole person yeah. i mean it's not me i don't think i've ever been eight stone up maybe when i was 10 years old for a little while but i was thinking it's like a whole love island person yeah so it's um it's a lot of weight mm. i mean i i'll never ever go i know people who lose weight say i'll never go back to that and i will never go back to that when you arrive today I expected that you were going to say, that was then with food. This is now. (laughs) I've completely changed the way that I feel about food. And then I saw how you were when the kebab arrived. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, that's not true, is it? (laughs) Well, I mean, so there's things, um, it is really complicated, food eating. And Mm. um, there's, there's things you can do. It's like, you know... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. I remember doing a thing with Piers Morgan where he said, look, you know, basically fat people should stop eating. Mm. And I, it's so ridiculous mm. that, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it is down to individual choice and decision-making, but the system is stacked against people. Oh, yeah. completely. Uh, it's totally no, I, stacked I, against them. I agree with that. I, I always say when you go into any of the coffee shops now, the big coffee shops, they've really got their snacks sorted out now. They're so delicious. And you've got these enormous, enormous biscuits that are about 350 calories. How, how are you meant to stay thin? Well, it's funny you should say that because I don't eat any of that. So when I go in a coffee shop, though, I get irritated. I think, look, Starbucks, mm. can't you just give me a no-sugar product? Yes. And the whole, the whole business model is a sugar economy. We've got sugar-filled mm. high streets. And I'm not the only one that doesn't want to eat refined sugar in food. So tell me a comforting comfort food-style snack that is healthy? Chicken schist with chilli sauce. These days I couldn't even make the chilli sauce, so I don't have to put the sugar, so there's no sugar in it. Now I tell you what I do, because sometimes I get them delivered now from Steph's in the Horse Fair, and there's not an option to just have it without the naan when you book it online. So I get it in the naan, and I turn it upside down, and I, I put it on the side and I say, will someone please eat that naan? Because even now I look at the naan, I just think if I'll have a little bit and then, you, then it's gone. So I, 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 when it comes to bread, it's still like a drug. Do you think I should have um, bought you some of that rather than a lamb kebab? You could have literally brought me anything <laughs> rather than that kebab. <laughs> Tom Watson, thank you so much for comfort eating with me. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Mixing and sound design was by Sammy L. Anani. If you like Comfort Eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.